You're listening to a Podglomerate original. Hey, Missing Pages fans, it's Beth Ann, and boy, do we have a treat for you today. If you listened to season one, you know that in our first episode, Kavya Visvanathan, The Untold Story, we took a look at how the young author got caught up in a plagiarism scandal, and then we heard from Kavya herself in the first interview she's done in 15 years. But did you know that in Missing Pages, Unabridged, our premium feed on Apple Podcasts, we released the extended interview with Kavya Visvanathan? Well, today, while we're hard at work on season two, we're releasing the episode to the public. For those who don't know, Missing Pages Unabridged is an Apple Podcast premium feed where you can listen to full episodes ad-free and find over 10 bonus episodes, just like the one you're about to hear. Missing Pages Unabridged is $4.99 a month or $49.99 for the full year, and you can get a week free if you sign up today. In this conversation with Kavya, we talk about her experience on the Today Show, the process of writing for a book packager, and her reflections on that experience. But first, here's a look at what Kavya has been up to since Opal Meda came out. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for being here, Kavya. Hi, Bethann. I'm so glad to be here. So first of all, we want to hear about your work in the legal field. Based on what we've looked up, you are known for doing some pretty challenging and really also impressive stuff, fighting for the rights of undocumented children. So tell us about that and what led you to that kind of work as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm an immigrant. My parents were both immigrants. We uh, left India when I was three years old, moved to Scotland, and then made it to New Jersey when I was around 10 or 11. Uh, so I don't know about that progression, but I am, I'm a proud New Jersey girl at heart. Uh, and, you know, my parents immigrated with papers. They were both doctors, so as professionals. Um, so in the grand scheme of immigration stories, we had a, an extremely easy path to immigration. And I became a U.S. citizen just before I turned 18 when I was a, a senior in high school. But even with all of that, you know, I have early memories of facing racism and like comments made and always feeling a little bit different and not sure what culture I belonged to and things like that. And just seeing how my parents, you know, even as educated professionals struggled as immigrants, it really created a passion for me for if I was going to go into law to do that type of work. Um, so in law school, I was part of a clinic where I represented two asylum seekers uh, applying for and thankfully winning asylum. And after that, I was pretty sold. So I spent a couple of years at a law firm, but I did a lot of pro bono work. And then I moved into the nonprofit world, working with uh, 
children applying for humanitarian immigration relief. And uh, do you work with a firm now? I mean, uh, sorry, with an organization now? Um, or And do you feel comfortable naming that organization? Or Yeah, I work for a nonprofit. It's called The Door. Uh, it's based in New York City. It's a youth development organization. So our mission is providing holistic services to young people ages 12 to 24. The idea is that uh, young people can come to our building in Soho or in, in the COVID world, I guess, our virtual building as well as our building in Soho and have every need that they might have met under the umbrella of one organization. So our legal services center is just one uh, division of that. Um, and I'm the director of our legal services center. So we're a team of about 50 attorneys, paralegals, social workers, um, administrative assistants, and we do primarily immigration work for around uh, almost 3,000 young people a year. I love that you were led to that through personal experience. Now, um, this is where I connect to you as a reader and writer, because you were a voracious reader like me <laughs> when you were growing up. So Tell us about how your passion for words also connects to that immigrant experience and especially the immigrant experience as you continued to achieve and got to, you know, the point where you knew you're going to be going to, you know, pretty much the best undergraduate institution around. I think I was very lucky. You know, there's definitely a stereotype about um, Indian immigrants needing to be doctors. And both my parents <laughs> were doctors, so I won't deny that... Um, they, they definitely had like a, a burst where they, I think, hoped I would be a doctor for about, uh, you know, six months. And then it became very, very clear that that was not the way my mind worked. Um, so I grew up reading all my earliest memories are being read to or reading. I grew up um, uh, partly because we were, I was growing up in Britain. I grew up reading Enid Blyton. Um, oh, who, yeah. Yeah. So that's like my treasured, treasured collection of children's books that I still have, like Ratty and Doggy, or that I've read hundreds of times. And that's sort of where like the love for words came from. And then, yeah, it just became very clear, like that was what I was good at. That was what came naturally. Um, I, I did well in other classes, but the writing and the reading, those subjects were the ones that came easily without so much effort. So I think my parents got that and were always extremely supportive, which I'm very, very thankful for. And, you know, easily and without much effort, but also with joy and passion, it sounds like, you know, even though it did come naturally to you, it was also something that you loved. And I think that makes such a difference in, um, you know, one college counselor we found in an article took notice of your writing ability and you sent her an Irish historical fiction book you were working on when you were 16. So I have to I have to ask about that. Irish historical fiction. Tell me more, Kavya, because that so, is really interesting. Oh, I'm so I'm so embarrassed to remember <laughs> this. Yes. So my my college counselor, I had a college counselor, I was very privileged to have that opportunity uh, when I was starting to think about colleges as a as a junior and senior in high school. And mm -hmm. I told her that I loved to write. And yeah, I had, you know, a couple of half-finished novels that 
look, I, I have not been able to go back and look at them. Um, like, <laughs> truly a little bit histrionic, melodramatic. Um, I always really loved uh, British and Irish history, partly because I grew up in Scotland. And right. so uh, had a real, yeah, felt like a bit of an Anglophile growing up and still like really loved the liter- the literary traditions of those countries. Right. So yes, went, wrote a wrote a novel set in, you know, 1600s Ireland, sort of like the very beginning of the Troubles, like a, not the Troubles, but, you know, like the the precursor, the historical events that maybe gave rise to the more modern day Troubles. Um, So I had one of those. And then my other one was a little bit more of even more melodramatic teenage fiction, which was a a teenage girl dealing with the aftermath of her best friend, um, uh, the, the book was a little bit of a mystery, like discovering that her best friend might have committed suicide and her sort of like reaction to that and her grief and the year, the year after that. These were both to be terrible, terrible, terrible <laughs> drafts that I hope never see the light of day. <laughs> You know, so it sounds like in high school and college, your dreams and priorities were about getting a great education, but also finding a way to write in in in, in some way. Because, you know, not everyone is writing novels when they're in high school, you know, and talking to their college counselor about them. Uh, you know, some of us were not talking to anyone about the novels we were writing. I mean, you were getting pretty far along. So tell me a little bit more about what your dreams were at that time, what you were looking ahead to. My dream was always to be a writer. That that would have been my absolute dream. Um yeah, to to write fiction, to if there was any way of making a living from doing something so incredible, like those are most people are the luckiest people in the world, I think. So it's that was true. Yeah. <laughs> that that would have always been my dream. I will say my other dream, my competing dream, which you know remains sort of my sub dream, would uh, was to be the um, the dining critic for the New York Times, but. <laughs> Oh my word! Yes, I swear we you know we, we share some some soul out at the, out there. Can you imagine what an, an amazing job I have? I was able to do some restaurant reviews very early in my career, and I'm telling you, um, of course, I was writing for places that didn't pay for my meals. <laughs> That put a kibosh on that. But uh, what I love about what you just said um, is that you had these dreams that were clearly very different from what your parents were dreaming for for you. Did you tell them, look, I want to write fiction? Is that something that you were clear with them about? Or did you feel like you kind of had to keep saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to law school? No, I was pretty clear with them that that was my dream. I I think they were they were always extremely supportive. I I think their view which was fair. I think it's extremely extremely hard to make a living writing fiction. Probably, I don't know, maybe impossible to make a living writing fiction right out of college. Um but they I think had the view like you this is something you clearly love. It's something you've clearly been able to make time for, you know, on the side so to speak. So we would we would recommend that you get as good an education as possible and maybe pursue a slightly more traditional career while you explore that. There we go. I think that would have been my parents' take. So um, in this atmosphere, and as you know, any of us who have been the academic literary high school students can say it's a whirlwind those past last couple of years when you're applying to colleges etc 
in that whirlwind, what inspired Opal Meda? Yeah. So when I kind of told my college counselor um, that I'm interested in writing and told her about these books, so she had written a book on college admissions. And so she had an agent and a connection to the publishing industry. And so she spoke to her agent about me and kind of made the introduction and talked a little bit about my interests and my goals. And um her agent said, I'm not, it's a long time ago, so I might not be getting all the details That's right, okay. but <laughs> That's fine. her agent essentially said, you know, we think you're great. Like we think you're talented. Uh, we, we don't think either of these books that your projects are going to sell. You know, very, very <laughs> fair. I 100% agree looking back on that. Um, but, you know, she said, let me, let me see. I've got some ideas. And so then when they came back a few months later, it was to say, would you be interested in working with a book packaging company? Um, we have found this company or we, we work with this company. We found this company and they have an idea for a story that they think would work as the story for you to, you know, tell and to be the face of. And that was the story of Opal Meda. That is something you're just starting college and you have an idea and it goes to a book deal so quickly. What did that feel like? you know, to be in that, to know that you had sort of grabbed a brass ring, if not the brass ring. It, it felt very surreal. It it honestly felt, it was a little bit of an out-of-body experience, just like even remembering all of it. Um, mm -hmm. it, it felt very confusing, to be honest. Um, like it was, I, I remember having many conversations with my parents about it because it, at the time, so that it all kind of happened when I was actually 17 yeah, 17, because I turned 18 my freshman year of college. So when I was 17 and a senior in high school um, is when this idea was sort of put forward. And I remember feeling like very agonized, like really like angsty 17-year-old and talking to my family and saying like, you know, it feels weird to be writing this book that isn't really my idea. Because <laughs> like, <you laughs> right? like, I hadn't actually like thought of the title or the plot or or any of it. It was not quite Irish historical 16th century fiction. <laughs> it wasn't as heady, perhaps, as that. Um, let me just take one step back and, and ask, did you know what a book packager was? No, no. I'm not at the time. Okay. No, I had absolutely no idea. It was very, I really did not, had never heard of the concept before until, yeah, until the idea was presented to me. So when the book was published, and it was well received. And I've been, I was working in publishing then. I remember it was very fun. I'm like, look at this book. This is something completely different. How did that feel? What did you hear people saying when the book came out? You know, it's funny. It, it felt great, obviously. Like I was 18 or 19 when it came out. So I felt, it, it felt great. You know, I was in college. I was a sophomore at that point. Like, of course, it feels really good to see your book in the shelf at Barnes & Noble. Like that's surreal and incredible and like a dream. Um, it also felt, this part is a little funny, I guess. It, it felt a little um, like I had something to hide. So one of the things that was always very interesting with Opal Meda is that I had been told, and I get, I get why, like I'd been told by like my PR team and by everyone I was working with in the industry, like to really never talk about the fact that a packaging company was involved and like that, you know, I was giving interviews and like doing press at, at the good parts at the beginning. And like always that was kind of like the guiding factor, right? Like you should never, ever mention the packaging company. And if they ask questions about it, like here's how you answer, like here's sort of the angle to take. So 
I always remember feeling like a little bit nervous that like, what if someone finds out that there was this packaging company and then like everything will fall apart? And of course, things fell apart for <laughs> different, but I, yeah, for different reasons. But it's just, I guess, funny looking back on that because, um, you know, the yeah, like the packaging company had like 50% of the copyright and they were on like the copyright page with me. And I remember my PR team, like before I did an interview saying like, I really hope no one looks that closely at the at that page. And here's how you should answer if you get any asked any questions about it. Isn't that funny? Because I, I know I wrote a couple of completely different books that are designed. They were for National Geographic. But I remember, you know, thinking, I wrote this, but people are kind of acting as if, oh, well, because it's a designed book, anything that smacks of packaging, you know, sounds, people make it sound so bad. And it's not, it can make for a really terrific book. A book being packaged doesn't equal literary problems per se. And yet you did experience that side of it. I think that's really interesting. Now, when did you start hearing about these suspicions of plagiarism? How did you, you know, how did it come to your ears? Was it something that came from your agent? Was it something you saw in the media, et cetera? No, I remember it actually very well. It was, I think, a weekend night. So it must have been a Friday or a Saturday night. Um, and I was uh, going to a party. I was in college. So it was, of course. Late. it was, late. I was going to a party. Uh, <laughs> and I got a call from like an unknown number on my cell phone. And I picked up uh, just automatically. And it was a reporter from the Harvard Crimson. Um, and he was, he, I think it was a he was asking, you know, can you, do you have any comment on these alleged similarities between your work and these other works? And I, I mean, I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like stunned. It was, I remember being dark. So it must've been, it was at night. Um, and yeah, I just had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, I, I said, I think I said something like that. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have anything to say and hung up. Um, and then the next morning it was, yeah, in the, in the edition of the Crimson. That is such a surreal experience to have something you know, so surprising and shocking that you didn't know anything about come up so close to home. And I'm wondering when you found out about this, how your publisher guided you, how your team guided you at that point. So I I was actually the one to tell my publisher. So I contacted them after mm-hmm. when I saw the article because I figured they weren't reading The Crimson. That's okay. Um, and... <laughs> And I said, you know, this article has come out. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know. I don't know what it's about. I don't know what happened. Like, what do we do next? Um, truthfully, the rest, it's a its a little bit of a blur um, looking back on all of it. I, I think my main kind of takeaway or my, my main feeling from all of it was it was it felt like a situation that spiraled out of control very, very quickly and that nobody knew what a big deal it was going to be until it was too late. Like, mm. I, I think I remember from like my publisher and I guess the packaging company was also involved, like just being guided in a way where it was sort of like, this isn't that big a deal. This isn't that big a deal. Well, you, you'll give a couple of interviews to talk about it and it's going to be okay. And yeah, and it's going to be okay. This will just die down. We'll move past it. We we had actually gotten to the point where the plan was to edit Opal Meta to change 
all of the passages with similarities and to mm-hmm. to reissue the book in a second edition that with all of that change and like that was going to be kind of the solution and then sort of when the media fur you know didn't die mm-hmm. down it all happened very quickly that you know little brown said we're we're going to pull the book and that's it and then that was kind of that was kind of the end, right? That was the end of my relationship with the publisher or the packaging company. And then the rest of it was just me kind of handling the consequences in my own life. We'll get to those. But the original editing process, I know, for example, in the books I've written, that they go through all of this with a fine tooth comb. In the original editing process, was there any talk about, you know, we need to make sure none of this is plagiarized or we need to make sure? I mean, was there anything like that? I think so. I mean, no, not not really that I remember. I, I guess it's it's funny. It's ironic. There was a scene in Opal Meda, I remember, that I, I don't think made it into the final book because of this exact issue, like where I had written or had been written something about like, um, like girls in in high school or at the mall, like it, it kind of looking like, um, like, like a watering hole in the jungle. And I remember somebody, I don't remember who either from the editor or from one of the editors sort of flagged that that description was very similar to a scene from the movie Mean Girls, which I guess that's exactly what I was going to (laughs) get, which had like just come out at the time. So it was very recent. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I'd seen Mean Girls, but I hadn't obviously I hadn't made that connection. And so I think we like very specifically took that scene out or tweaked it. Such an honest mistake. Yeah. So we tweaked that and we took that out because they, they had said, you know, oh, I think that's a little too too like derivative of, of the scene in Mean Girls. So I guess, yes, like people, that, that was the only time I remember anything like that coming up. So you were in college and, you know, you get this story broken in the college newspaper. What did it feel for you like on campus? Did you have friends who supported you who came to your defense? Oh, God, it was horrible. Um, I I went home pretty quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. I just needed to get away from school. So I went home for a couple of weeks, uh, came back because I'm from New Jersey. So we were I was right by New York and was there for like meetings and things, too. Yeah. Then I went back to school. I, uh, just in time for finals, I will say that it was not my stellar GPA semester, but I had a few things are painful in the moment. And then you look back on them as more valuable experiences. Uh, there were a lot of people I think who had started becoming very nice to me because Opal Meda was coming out. Um, and back when it was like shiny and glamorous and, you know, they very quickly disappeared, but maybe that was for the best. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely realized who like my real friends were. And I'm glad to say like some of my college friends are still my absolute best friends today. So I think it, you know, painful in the moment, never fun to feel like everyone's talking about you, like you're being scrutinized, like people are whispering about you at parties or wherever you go or in the dining hall. But, uh, you know, made it through with the right friends. I have a little tray in my office that says that which does not kill you makes you more interesting at parties. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of something that was not a party at all, um, the Today Show interview with Katie Couric. Tell us a little bit about what was going on at the time for you, how you prepared for the interview. I imagine it was a surreal experience. 
I, I don't want to call it infamous. That gives um, Katie Couric too much power, but it was definitely a difficult interview. So tell us what was going on for you, how you prepared or didn't prepare. Didn't really prepare. So I would say the. Oh, yeah, I, I don't remember that much about it. Um, maybe block some of it out. But, I, you know, that was one of the examples, I think, of the whole situation sort of like spiraling out of control and not really realizing the gravity of what was happening until the till the end. Um, so this was, I think, a time when my everyone I'd been working with, like all the like I say, I say adults. Yeah, I guess they were the adults at the time um, had, you know thought this was going to go away. It's going to go away. Here's what we're doing for damage control. And then it kind of became clear this isn't going to go away. So (laughs) they had me meet with, a, I believe, a crisis consultant, like a crisis consultant or a PR specialist, someone in that line. I had one meeting with him. I I don't remember his name or or the firm. Um, And he suggested that maybe I do an interview, that I proactively do an interview, and that could be a good strategy. I, I think it was probably like a matter of a couple of days between that meeting and going on the show. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember preparing that much for it. I was, I think at that point, unfortunately, in a little bit of shock. So just sort of doing what I was told. Um, I only remember silly details, like the, the outfit I wore, which I had really, really liked, but was never able to wear again. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of what happened there. And I guess this is such a silly thing to say, I guess infamous is the right word for the interview, you know, it, it honestly wasn't until I was kind of thinking, preparing for this podcast that, you know, my husband said, he's like, you know, they're going to ask you about the interview. And I was in my, I guess, continuing naivete. I said, you know, everyone told me at the time that was a really good interview. And his face just changed. And he said, caveats, no, I think the consensus is it was really not a good interview. That also brings up what I think is a really interesting question and probably one that is easier for you to answer. If you could go back and give that 19-year-old caveat any advice, what would it be? Oh my gosh, so much. Um, I think <laughs> I think the biggest lesson, well, two lessons, right? I think the biggest lesson that I learned, which is something that I definitely did not appreciate at 19, is just mm-hmm. what it means to put your name on something. Um, and I, I think that I just like, I didn't understand the weight of that or the import or the responsibility of that at 19. And I think that's kind of how I got myself into trouble in the first place. Like I signed up to write a book that I hadn't even thought of the title of or the characters' names or the plot or anything, which isn't something I would do now as an adult. And then during the process, you know, I always took responsibility. After this came out, I took responsibility because regardless of how it happened, which is maybe something that we'll never actually know, um, it was my name and it was my name on the book. And that's the public face of it. And there's an ownership element of that. So I've always, I took that responsibility. Um, so I would tell my 19 year old self, like you, you only have your one reputation. It means a lot what you attach your name to and you have to think about that. That's a really interesting answer because I think it gets to the heart of so much of what we're trying to do on this podcast and talking about identity and publishing and authors. And, you know, the name that goes on the cover is truly, it it is a responsibility. And there is responsibility on the publisher's part as well. But as you say, ultimately, you know, the buck stops, you know, with you in, in some way. And so, 
you have always maintained that you did not intentionally plagiarize. And I, you know, you can speak to that again if you want to, but you, but my real question is less about that than it is about how do you think this built? I think it's a few things. I mean, I think it was partly because there was so much media attention around the book at the beginning and a lot of attention about like the advance that I was paid. So I think the amount of money involved definitely made it a much higher profile kind of story. I think people are interested in like, you know, whatever, like the dark doings of the Ivy League. Um, <laughs> definitely like a little bit of that. Um yeah. And then I also, you know, it was when I, when I was a freshman in college, I guess Facebook had just started like the internet, that kind of culture of information sharing through social media platforms and through internet platforms had, was just starting to take off. So I, I think that also, I think everyone was surprised by how big this story became and how quickly. And I think part of that was it, you know, kind of coincided with the internet as a as a forum for gossip's not the right word but for like a, a forum for like cultural discussions I, I think coincided with this event so I think all of those things maybe created a little bit of a perfect storm yeah that's a very interesting thing about the uh, sort of moving into web 2.0 and social media and people being able to say, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And and all of that sort of thing. So do you think the crime, quote unquote, matched the punishment? Um, I, well, I think that, you know, like I said, I took responsibility. And at the end of the day, my name was on the book and the buck stopped there. Uh, I think that as a result of that, I've reflected on that. I'm a lot older now. I've grown. I've learned a lot as a person. Um, but I think I paid a significant cost for what happened. I think in many ways I was the least, I, I guess like I'm putting in quotes, the least powerful person in the room through any of these conversations or anything that was happening around the book and the subsequent fallout. Um, but I think I paid perhaps the most significant price for all of it. Uh, so whatever the crime was, like, I, yeah, I hope that I can move past it. Uh, I will say that at least in my personal life, you know, my my reaction to all of this once it kind of happened was to just put my head down and just try to just move on with my life and not stay, stay completely out of the public eye. Just try to put this behind me, keep my head down and just work hard and do whatever I could to to move past it. Um, you know, it was, became very close to home because Harvard actually did a, a full investigation into whether I had plagiarized uh, in the immediate aftermath of this. And they found that I had not, like their independent investigative committee found that I had not. And so that I was able to, you know, continue to graduate on time without any kind of penalty. So so that helped me personally with being able to just like move forward on with my life. It's amazing to me to hear that because of the news cycle, because of what's trendy, I hadn't known that. At all. Do you think that now you have talked a lot about growing and moving on? Have you healed from the trauma now of the media attention you got at that time? Yes. I mean, for for better or for worse, um, 
I have faced far worse challenges and harder challenges in my life than Opal Maida. Um, you know, both my parents passed away in an accident when I was 24. My husband and I have had like various like health concerns in more recent years. So I would say that those are the kinds of things that I like think about more every day rather than Opal Maida. And I'm certainly learned and grown from the experience, but I, yeah, very much want to, you know, put it behind me and not let that continue these things, not let it continue to define me. Um, I know, I know it's always going to be part of my life, um, partly because of the internet. It will always be there when someone does a Google search for Kavya. But, um, but yeah, hoping to just be able to not let it dictate my choices or my decisions anymore. Well, it sounds as if you've made a lot of great choices and decisions since then. But of course, I have to ask, about re-entering the book world, because it sounds to me like you are working on something. So tell us, would you, do you consider yourself re-entering the book world now? Oh gosh, well, I'm definitely still, definitely still a lawyer. So I suppose my parents would have given me the advice, don't quit your day job. And I have not quit my day job. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, right after Opal made, I stopped writing for a while. Um, uh, but then I started again. So I have, yes, signed with an agent. I'm working on revisions on an adult manuscript. It is not, oh, oh, you'll be happy to know it is not Irish historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that is, the, that's the headline, not <laughs> Irish historical fiction. You loved writing and that never went away. It really never went away. My, my dad, um, who was a surgeon, I used to talk to him when I was a kid, when I was growing up about, you know, what would you do? The question you always ask, right? What would you do if you had all the money in the world? If money didn't matter, what would you do every day? And he would always say to me, and his answer never changed. He said, it wouldn't matter if I didn't get paid a cent for being a surgeon. I would keep being a surgeon until my hands failed me, until I couldn't trust my hands anymore. And I always thought as a kid, like, that's that's what it is to, like, really love your career, to have, like, that kind of passion and calling for something. So I guess it sounds pretty corny. No, it's actually making me tear up a little bit because I just, um, I, I, I don't, have you ever read Cutting for Stone by yes. Abraham? Ver yes, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> that that's making me when I think about surgeons who are really passionate. You know, I don't think it's something that I could stop doing, um, at least not on a permanent basis. Definitely there's lulls there. I've been in hiatus. There's times when everything I write is awful and it just feels like the most miserable thing in the world. But I don't think I could stop. And, you know, for a really long time, because of Opal Maida, I didn't want to try. I didn't want to put myself out there. But I've spent a lot of time in the last few years, like thinking more about like what, what, what feels worse? Is it the pain of not writing, of not putting myself out there, of not pursuing this dream, which is the dream I've had ever since I was a little kid? Or is it the pain of like opening myself back up to, you know, rejection and judgment and scrutiny? And I think the, it would be worse to not try. The one thing I guess we haven't answered is, can you tell us anything about this new book? Sure. Very, very broadly, it's it's an adult, it's an adult fiction. It's an adult manuscript. Um, and it's, so it's about a group of friends in their 30s sort of dealing with that transition from being kind of, I guess, truly young to to just the, the feelings around approaching what I guess we might consider early middle age. 
Gotcha. Um, so however you describe early middle age. So not that not that that's life imitating art or art imitating life for me at all. I, I, have, <laughs> I have zero conflicted emotions about my approach to early middle age. You know, as far as I'm concerned, at this point in, in the world, middle age goes to 80. I'm telling you. So, but that sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm really excited for you about that. Um, is there anything else that Kavya that you'd like to add? Um, I think, no, just what we've said. And then I would also just say, like, I, I really have no ill will towards anyone I worked with in publishing. They were all really good people. They were very kind, very nice to the teenage me. But, you know, I think everyone is operating within a framework of incentives. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's just how the world works and how a business and a system works. And I just wish that, you know, at 18, I had just known a little bit more about that because I think I would have just approached things very differently. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for being so candid, Kavya. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was truly a pleasure talking to Kavya for this episode. We're immensely grateful to her for agreeing to appear on our show for her first interview about the book publishing industry in 15 years. If you liked this taste of Missing Pages Unabridged, you can find more episodes in our premium feed on Apple Podcasts. Missing Pages Unabridged is produced by The Podglomerate. Showrunner Kayla Littman. Producers Jordan Aaron and Chris Boniello. Production and hosting by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo, Kavya Vishwanathan, and Emmy Battaglia 